Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guess lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to First Bite. I say that at the beginning of a episode, but you know, I'm just grateful that you're here. Today, we have an incredibly special guest, and actually, the lovely woman that we're interviewing today, 
was Erin's idea. She listens to her podcast and has followed her. And this has been an absolute passion goal of Erin. And every time she talks about it, she geeks out and that makes me excited. So we geek out. So like we're going to geek out together. So here we are. We have the one and only Meg Proctor, M-S-O-T-R-L, who is an occupational therapist and founder of Learn, Play, Thrive, LLC. She's also the host of Two Sides of the Spectrum. It's a twice-monthly podcast that is dedicated to exploring research, amplifying autistic voices, and changing the way we think about autism in life and in professional therapy practice. In truth, this is a learning curve for yours truly. Even writing the course description for today's episode was hard because I was trained to write children with autism and adult with autism. And trying to embrace identity first language feels honestly, here's my disclaimer, it feels counterintuitive because that's not how I was taught. But yet here we are where we're hearing from the individuals as part of that community and we're shifting. So this is the shift. This is me growing. So while I'm tripping over the words in today's episode to get it right and to ask the right questions, extend grace, y'all, extend grace. But Meg, hi, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I have like 400 questions and I know Aaron's going to be here in like 20 seconds, but can you just kind of give us the backstory? Cause you're an OT, but how did you come to be in this place of your career with this passion? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll jump in on the language piece because I know hearing you say autistic and then I'll use identity first language and say autistic when I tell my story. So I can just explain that up front too for people who might have been taught to use person first language somewhere along the way, often in our in our training programs or at our jobs. And I was taught the same thing. But when I really started listening to the autistic community, what what we're hearing is that autism is part of autistic people's identity. It's not something they can be separated from. It's not something they want to be separated from. And of course, there's individual preference. There are autistic people who probably would prefer to be called a person with autism, and we would respect that. But the overwhelming preference for the default from the autistic community is identity-affirming language. And there's even been some interesting research showing that we use person-first language, person with autism, for things that we find the most stigmatizing and that it actually increases stigma because we could say a neurotypical child because it's okay to be neurotypical. But then we say a child with autism because we have to distance that child from being autistic because we're saying it's not okay to be autistic. And it's not a disease. It's a neurotype. So that's sort of the why behind identity first language. Okay. All right. I struggled with ADD, ADHD. So there's my viewpoint of having that put on me. You're neurodivergent, Michelle. I am. I am neurodivergent. My family just called me a hot mess, but yes, I'm neurodivergent, which is so odd to think of and view myself in that light. But yes, but this is not about me. So let me quit analyzing me. Meg, but how did you, you're an OT. So how did you go from 
Unfortunately, I know most folks think of OT, they think of fine motor skill set, like stacking blocks. And I learned very early in my career, if you tell an OT that they're confined to handwriting with tears and stacking blocks, you're going to get laser shot to the eyes and then imaginarily exploded. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, at its heart, occupational therapy should be helping people participate in the most meaningful activities in their life. That's what we call their occupations in a way that's authentic. So I I'll I'll tell you my story and I'll I'll just start by saying it's so deeply aligned with what occupational therapy should be at its core of caring about authentic and meaningful participation in daily life and for neurodivergent people especially for autistic people we are often missing the mark by so much because we're not we're not trained well and we're often not listening in the right ways and in the right places and to the right people. So when I finished OT school, I started an early intervention and in a clinic. And it was hard. I mean, we all know how hard it is to be a new therapist, especially in a field that's so broad. And I just I wanted so badly to be good at what I was doing, to feel like I was helping families. And early intervention really isn't. OTs aren't as pigeonholed into fine motor. I mean, I was trying to help families, mostly with very young autistic kids with their daily routines. And I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I just had (laughs) all of this like theory and what not to do. And I had the names of what to do. Like I knew I wanted to use the coaching model and not bring in a bag of toys. I wanted to be bagless routine. Yes. But I had never seen any of it modeled. And I didn't know about neurodiversity affirming therapy, but I knew that the behavioral therapies I had seen on my field work felt wrong in my core. And so what I said was that I didn't really think working with autistic kids was my strength. But what I meant was I feel really uncomfortable being unkind and coercive because it doesn't align with my values as a person. I didn't have the language around it yet. So I just sort of struggled through. I wound up working at the schools, which felt a little easier, and I was able to find I was able to find some projects that felt really good. I was mostly working with autistic kids in the schools too. Just It just kind of happened that the schools I was working at had autism classrooms. And I did some fun things. Like I did an after-school leisure group based around kids who were really interested in building Legos and some things like that. But I was still kind of uninspired with the work I was doing and always – looking for what would make it feel more meaningful and like it had more depth and relevance. And I just imagine that your listeners, I imagine that SLPs go through the same process of like, what am I doing and does it matter? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Erin, you've seen me evolve and I've seen you evolve. And I know we have a ways to go, but I felt like an outlier because most people in our community do the bag of tricks therapy and I focused so long for so many years on coaching and guiding before I really knew that coaching was the term, right? Wait, Erin, what are your takes on this? Because you've seen this and yeah. I think that, I mean, 
our listeners know that Michelle was my supervisor and she, I have learned a lot about neurodiversity affirming practice from listening to your podcast, Meg. So I'm really excited to have you talk with us today. And you've, through your podcast, I have found many other resources to kind of dive more into that. And I'm at a place where I'm kind of the person that's trying to bring this to the clinic that I work at right now. A lot of the things we'll talk about today will involve that, but I am well aware that it's the shift is a little bit easier for me because similar to what you were saying, it's already, these things already made sense. And I was already doing very child-led therapy and I was already asking these types of questions. And so then when I was finding these resources and I was listening to the people that you interview, I was like, oh, I have some guidance. I have support. This makes more sense to me. This feels better. This feels more natural. I understand that the way I, I mean, the way I was taught in grad school was very much like you said, the table, we take data. There's very evidence-based practice and that never made sense to me, but that is the majority of what we're taught in school. It makes it difficult even, I think, for a lot of people to then shift that mindset. It really does. It really does. And it's hard to move past something that doesn't feel right if you don't know what to do instead because you have Mm -hmm. to show up and do something in your session. It's a really uncomfortable place to be when you start learning, oh, these are the things I shouldn't be doing and you don't yet know what to do. (laughs) My own journey took me to a position at UNC Chapel Hill. I was a faculty, a clinical faculty member for their TEACH autism program, T-E-A-C-C-H. But really I worked in their clinic in Asheville, North Carolina and did trainings for them. So TEACH was one of the first programs in the seventies to say autism is neurodevelopmental. It's a culture Autistic people have strengths. It's not caused by refrigerator moms, mm-hmm. which was, you know, the predominant theory at the time. And I wouldn't actually call Teach a neurodiversity affirming organization, but I would say that compared to a lot of the others, they have some of the basic components there. They do listen to autistic people and they do reflect on learning styles and strengths. Could you explain really quickly, I'm sorry, for our audience who might not know exactly how you would define neurodiversity affirming practice? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, and I know we'll talk about this more as we go, but the elevator speech definition I'll give you right now is, so neurodiversity is just means people who have different neurotypes, autistic being one neurotype, right? And it's a paradigm where we accept that as a valid way of existing in the world and where we're not trying to change autistic people to be less autistic. I know we'll get much more into that content in depth as we keep talking, but generally neurodiversity is is saying that like it's okay that you think differently and experience the world differently and it's not my job to change that. I mean, I have OCD and it was interesting to think, like Michelle was saying with her with ADHD to think of that as neurodivergent. And I always say there's things about my OCD that are such a strength. And yes, in certain other areas, it makes things a little bit more difficult. But as I shifted learning about myself and the strengths that I have, it also, I felt like helped me shift in the way that I was 
looking at my patients. And I said to a couple of people that I work with, I was like, I have learned so much from taking a step back and working with my patients and trying to learn from them in the way that they view the world, because it is so beautiful in, in those differences. And I've found so much more joy and so much more, I've just learned so much of, even about the world by trying to shift and try to view it to connect better with the patients that I'm working with. Yeah, it's a great shift and it feels right. I mean, I think this one lands because once you start doing it, it's like, oh, obviously this is what we should have been doing all along. Yeah. Yes. And I wouldn't say yes. I wouldn't say I quite got it yet when I was at Teach, but I was excited to be learning. I learned so much there and I didn't have any sort of crazy caseload. I could be really thoughtful about my sessions. I just did a lot of teaching and training of other people, of students, a lot of giving trainings for teach. But eventually I left there when I had my first child in 2017. And I started doing a good bit of mentoring of other therapists. And I found that I was teaching the same things over and over again. So that's how I wound up creating an online course. Because I was like, you know, a lot of these things that I've learned at teach therapists out there on the ground would feel so much more confident and competent if they had access to real relevant trainings on autism. But then very quickly, I started listening to the autistic community and had to, I say had to, got to, I got the opportunity to change what I was teaching and to center autistic voices and the autistic perspective and to really build what has now become a neurodiversity affirming continuing education company where I don't just sell my own courses. I sell courses from two SLPs as mm -hmm. well, one of whom is autistic and have the podcast and all of this free content, but that's really centered around our values of listening to the autistic community and being affirming. So that's sort of how my journey brought me here. And it's it's a great place to be. I honestly feel as a speech pathologist, we focus so much on expressive language that we were not, we're communication experts. And that is a crock of you know what, because we don't listen. It's profound to me how many clinicians just focus on the output and not stepping back for the input. And so this is I mean, myself included in that and just taking the time to listen to these voices is a huge step for so many. Well, and also Michelle, to understand that our view of communication may not be, or our expectation, we need to take a step back and realize yes. that we don't know. And, and there are so many ways to communicate and there's so many valid ways to communicate. Yes. And we really want to have a shared meaning and shared connection. And that's so much more valuable than how many verbalizations they have or how they're choosing to communicate. And that's from like the speech pathology perspective. Yes. Yeah. I've had a lot of speech language pathologists have the revelation that they need to talk a lot less mm -hmm. yes. in their sessions. Yes. Because that's, that's honestly what we're taught to do is verbal model, verbal model, verbal model to the point that like, dear God almighty, it's overwhelming. I mean, you're, my tongue's exhausted today, but that has a whole lot more to do with oral surgery that I had yesterday. But I mean, on a good day after therapy, 
it can feel like that. Yeah. And we base a lot on, you know, evidence-based practice is very, very, it's a very much push, which evidence is really important. But I think the value of the evidence of hearing autistic voices, that is evidence, that is valid, that is ethical. And sometimes just because there's research to show that something works, whatever we want to call it, if that's not ethical, I mean, we should probably just (laughs) throw that out the window. Yeah. And, you know, when we look at research evidence, what outcomes are they looking at, right? Like, are they holding the well-being of autistic people front and center or are they – often the outcomes are for autistic people to act less autistic, which which if I can just explain neurodiversity from practice a little bit more, because I think that ties in really nicely to this question about research. So if we think about neurodiversity affirming practice, what does that look like? What does that mean? And it starts like we've been talking about with listening to autistic people and viewing autism as a culture in which we need to build our cultural competence. So if you think of autism as a culture, it starts to feel a little gross that we come in as the experts, right? We would never do that to any other culture of like, oh, let me just tell you how to act a little bit more like me. You'll do better. People will will like you more. You know, whatever these outcomes. So we're really saying other people around you will feel less uncomfortable if you conform to our culture. And we know better than to do that in almost every other instance, or at least we're trying to learn better than to do that. And we're really lagging behind on seeing autism as a culture. And I think one piece of research that really highlights this is the double empathy problem. So the double empathy problem was conceptualized by an autistic researcher, Dr. Damian Milton, and then his team did the research. And it's really simple. What they did was they put people into groups. They had a group of only autistic people and a group of only neurotypical people. And each of those groups was just as good as the other at sharing information. There was no problem with communication amongst the autistic people with the other autistic people. And then when they set them up to have a social interaction – the autistic-only group reported similar levels of satisfaction as the neurotypical group, which really highlights the the ways that the autistic people were communicating around information and communicating socially. They were working. They were working for the other autistic people they were communicating with. Same for the neurotypicals. When they mixed the groups, everybody's ability to share information went down and everybody's satisfaction with the social experience went down. And this just drives home the point that neurotypicality is one way to be, being autistic is another way to be, and what we've been doing is trying to impose neurotypicality on neurodivergent people. And why does this matter? The reason it matters is because it hurts people. So when we try to teach autistic people to act neurotypical, to to mask or hide their autism, to be inauthentic in their interactions, it's linked to PTSD, depression, and to higher rates of suicide. Suicide rates are already pretty high in the autistic community. So we're really harming people by our own lack of cultural competence and our interventions that are trying to 
teach people to be less autistic. Okay, I got to ask the question because it's killing me. What about ABA? Because I oh, have bless had- Michelle. Well, we- <laughs> I mean, but I'm serious. I have no, had no, no, no. horrible interactions like working with ABA therapists in my local area and just forcing them to sit down and forcing these little ones. I had one lady force a child to sit down and flashcard drilled. She said he's using forward utterances. She taught the child to say, I have orange cat. The child didn't even have a cat. And that was her, but he can talk in forward utterances. I was like, you flashcard tortured this child and none of this is healthy and safe for this little human. That's probably like a 20-hour CEU course in and of its own, right? Yeah. So (laughs) (laughs) sorry, Meg. (laughs) No, I'm happy to talk about behaviorism and ABA. (laughs) So a lot of what we do in our therapy practices, whether we know it or not, comes out of behaviorism and ABA. Yes. And so, I mean, the, the history of it is that Igar Lovas, who founded ABA, also founded gay conversion therapy for a similar purpose, right? To, oh, dear God. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's a good analogy, right? Because we're we've gotten a little bit farther with it being okay to be gay and knowing that you're not going to make somebody less gay through therapy, you're going to make them hide it better. And behavioral interventions for autistic people do the same thing. They teach them to hide their autism and to function in the way that we would expect with the similar mental health outcomes. And you're going to get, you're going to get all kinds of pushback and feedback on this conversation because people say, oh, what about modern ABA? And we're not doing discrete child training and ABA has changed. Where we are, they sure are. So discrete trial is rampant here. In no, it, my it is. Yeah. And mm-hmm. at its heart, every form of behavioral therapy is looking at a child's observable right. behavior and not holding at its center as the most important thing, the child's well-being and their authentic participation. So, so that's what I would come back to with what does neurodiversity affirming practice mean? Well, it means one, listening to autistic people who are telling us that they are traumatized by behavioral therapies, which is shown in the research, PTSD and trauma, but also putting their positive autistic self-identity front and center. Are we teaching them that their way of existing, their way of being, their way of thinking, their way of expressing themselves is bad and needs to change? Are we focusing on observable behavior and our own neurotypical culture norms? Or are we asking the question of what do you need to feel good, to love and accept yourself and to participate fully and authentically in the world? And it's really easy to say, oh, yeah, I don't do ABA, that's bad. But when we actually examine our own practices, right? we're using so many problematic behavioral strategies. And my point in that isn't for people to feel bad about themselves. It's, it's for us to say, oh, let me look at this and reflect on it honestly and see if there's a way that I can grow and try something different. I'm still doing this all the time. I interview autistic people every week. This is my whole business. And I still show up and say, hey, 
my whole Instagram audience, my whole email list, here's the thing I've been doing wrong and here's how I'm going to change it. So I think that's our our next steps is to, to figure out how to be honest and reflective and figure out what we can do better. I mean, Michelle and I always say, when you know better, you do better. And yeah. it's so the word authentic, I make a word every year, actually. And authentic was my word this year, which I think is very interesting and in that this is our last year. But I remember specifically one patient that I had who was an ABA, but then would come see myself and another therapist for occupational therapy and speech therapy. And I remember he would come in every day with us with an idea. And one day it was to become the Pixar lamp, which took us a while to get there. I remember you telling me the story. It took us a while to get there. And I just remember he knew that when he would come to see us, we would honor his idea and we would listen and we would help him get there. That just wasn't the same where he was at ABA and he loved to dress up and he loved to create and he loved to expand on these things. And it was just the most beautiful thing to know that he could trust us to work through his differences in communication and his differences in how he was expressing himself to be able to get to this idea that he had. But that's because of us honoring all of that communication and all of his sensory differences and all of his ideas and the joy on his face when he finally became the Pixar lamp. Like that's just a small example of the importance of honoring a child and helping them feel authentic. But I I see some of these children that have had ABA forever and it's, you can see that they just don't trust themselves because they've always been told that what they're doing is wrong or that they need to change it. And I remember in your episode with Rachel Dorsey really stuck with me when she was saying how, what did she say? And you you know better than, but she was like, it will not get easier for us. Like it's not, no matter how much we go through people that do social skills, like it's not going to get easier. And all it does is make autistic people feel that they're wrong and continue to distrust their motivation and from an interoception and from a understanding of how they feel, it it makes it so much harder because you're telling them that this feeling that they have right now and this motivation they have to do something is wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that ties in really nicely to the sort of foundational piece of of strengths-based approaches, which was one of the first shifts I started making in my work. You know, we sort of are steeped in this deficits-based model of what can they not do compared to their neurotypical peers and how do we remediate that deficit. But I had an an OT professor at NYU, Dr. Christy Patton. I didn't go to NYU. I just read something that she had written and then I spoke with her on the phone. And she said, we don't build our lives on our deficits. We build them on our strengths. And so this this idea of taking the things that autistic kids and I would say kids with ADHD are really interested in learning about deeply, we take them away or we dangle them like carrots at the end of a stick and say, first you do this thing I want, then you can have this thing you love. We limit them. We just withhold the things that bring kids joy when everything in their brain is saying, 
I want to learn everything I can about this. And you know what that child is going to build their life on? Their strengths and their passions. I tell this story about myself that I'm terrible at memorizing. And I'm also pretty bad at directions and recognizing people's faces and learning people's names. If you had drilled me on any of these things, I wouldn't have gotten better. I just wouldn't have. I would still be bad at all of those things. It would have been torture if you made me do any of those things for 20 hours a week, 40 hours a week as a child. And I would have learned to kind of feel like I'm bad at things. And it would have taken time away from me doing the things that I actually cared about and that I was actually good at and that I have truly built my life on. I just got around all those other things, right? Like I I accommodate for them. I don't focus on remediating them. And that's what we do to our autistic kids. And it's just not the right approach because that's not what they're going to build their life on. And it's sending them the wrong message about themselves. So what do we do? How do we do better? I'm sorry. I'm like on the edge of my seat over here. Just this hits really home because of Uncle Matthew. I mean, I know we spoke ever so briefly right beforehand, but you know, I have a special needs brother-in-law and he'll come live with us in the future. Don't know when the future is, but I mean, like my in-laws are getting older and you know, this is Uncle Maddie comes to us, right? But he has ASD along with CP and a cortical vision impairment, microcephaly, and intellectual disability. So he and my children are all kind of developmentally around the same age. But for him in particular, COVID hit hard. And he's not been able to go out and be with his people, be with his friends at his at his day program. And he's an older adult who has autism as opposed to an autistic adult who just happens to be older. I'm, again, language learning here, but how do we affirm him and his choices? Because this is just hitting in my soul on so many levels, Meg. Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely shifts that we can make in our practices. And one of them is to is to really start by asking ourselves why we're doing what we're doing and why it matters. So if you're writing a goal saying, so what, right? Mm -hmm. This person does this differently or they don't do this. So first of all, so what does this matter? And second of all, why does this matter? Because it is making it hard for this child to be their full authentic selves and participate in their daily life. Or is it making me uncomfortable or making people around them uncomfortable? Or am I just working on it because it's what I know how to work on as a therapist, which is honestly what a lot of us do, right? We work on the stuff we're good at rather than building our skills to really support our clients. So starting with that, an example of that is people who ask me, like, what do I do about stimming, right? Somebody who moves their body in a way that's unexpected and that's how they release their emotions. It's like, well, you might need to teach the people around them to do better perspective taking. (laughs) I mean, we all can feel comfortable with that. And there's times that that simple answer isn't quite so simple, but we don't always want to go to, oh, let me do an intervention to, to fix that. So for speech, 
I just interviewed on my podcast, Alex Zakos. Oh, it was so good. I just <clears throat> listened to the episode. I know. That's how I felt after the interview. I was like, this is so good. And I have a course by Kate McLaughlin on AAC. And both of these areas are just such big areas for speech. So Alex talks about kids who communicate with scripts. She runs the Instagram page, Meaningful Speech. This is just one example of an area that speech language pathologists are really misunderstanding how communicative scripting is and imposing their own idea of what communication looks like on our clients and getting it wrong, getting it so wrong. The same for how we're teaching AAC, like for kids who need communication devices, we often miss it. We often approach it wrong, approach it poorly, or impose these behavioral models on how we're teaching them to use AAC so that we're not actually teaching them autonomous communication, saying what they want to say when they want to say it. And this is Kate McLaughlin's sort of line on that. She teaches our AAC course, but also not giving them the opportunity to learn to use robust systems or we're kind of teaching them to communicate in the way we want them to, using the things that we want them to use and in the ways that we find important. I think the thread that I trace through this is us as therapists not really doing our work to understand our clients' learning styles and needs so that we can tailor our interventions to be strengths-based and to be centered around autonomous authentic communication and engagement. Instead, we're just kind of like, oh, I'll teach you words, right? I say we, but I think a way that that SLPs are falling back on habits and not really learning about their clients. And OTs, we have our own own set of these, but teaching labeling, labeling nouns, redirecting from oh, God, I hate that. And <laughs> not when the episode from this week when she, it hit hard for me when she was saying how much emotion and intonation and affect, the importance of that in scripts, because I think there's this, in the past, there has been this idea that it did like these scripts didn't carry as much emotion, that they were just repeating things. I mean, I had a, the same patient from the Pixar lamp that would say when he would get bored or we weren't doing what he wanted, he'd be like five miles an hour. And then when we would be get going, he'd be like, 24 miles an hour from the movie Cars, but he ha- it had so much emotion behind it. And as speech therapists, we're taught to emphasize words. So blue car or go ball. And it's like, and I'll say to some people, I'll say, that child is not listening to anything that you're saying because that has no emotion. You're not giving them the full, especially knowing that how many percent of our autistic children learn from a gestalt understanding of language. It's like that child's not, I wouldn't be listening. That child's not listening because you're not being authentic with them and bringing joy to it. Yeah, absolutely. There's just so many things like this. So I guess if I could sort of name some of the big categories that we need to change, like one is starting with the why or the so what, but two, which ties into what we're talking about now is recognizing that perspective taking goes both ways, that we do not understand by default how neurodivergent people learn and understand the world and learn language and communication and that language is not Wait. always communication. 
say that again slowly because people are going to need to process that because I'm I am a visual learner. So when you're saying this, I'm imagining typing this out. So can you say that number two point again? Yeah. That we as neurotypical people yes. don't have an intuitive understanding of how neurodivergent people think and learn, experience the world, communicate and connect. Perfect. And if we think we do, we're wrong and we haven't done our work <laughs> and we're, we're missing the mark. That mm-hmm. just goes back to the double empathy problem, right? That we've said for so long that autistic people are bad at perspective taking and social skills when really it's that autistic people have trouble using the social skills that are expected by neurotypicals and taking the perspective of neurotypicals. Neurotypicals or non-autistic people more specifically, have trouble taking the perspective of autistic people and using social skills that are comfortable and expected by autistic people. Yes. And I have to add a layer to that. Also, the societal norms that are placed for those social skills come from a upper white middle class society perspective of this is what's expected. And even within that parameter, don't take in other cultures and what's appropriate. It's standard English versus everything else. So there's there's so many layers to that. Okay. Sorry. No, absolutely. That's such a good point. It is it is very intersectional in every way. Yeah. And I feel like there's at least more dialogue around cultural competency outside of neurodivergence. But then we get, you know, it all comes together. You'll have a black transgendered autistic client. And we have to be ready to listen and reflect and to question our our own biases and our our inability to understand the experience and needs of that client without doing a lot of work. So what perspective taking going both ways can mean for our clinical practice isn't just that we need to listen to autistic people and learn about autism learning styles, learn about autistic strengths. It also means that we need to not ask autistic people to do all the work. You know, what we hear is that it's exhausting. So when something's not working, can we change what we're teaching? Can we change the way we're teaching it? Can we change the environment? Can we change the expectations of the neurotypical teacher or peers or parents rather than just asking the autistic person to constantly accommodate everyone around them and try to learn in a way that we expect them to learn. And then I guess the third big area, I mean, there's so many, but a a third big area would be around really moving away from teaching autistic kids neurotypical social skills. Eye contact. Sorry. Oh, Oh, yeah. 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 That actually came up at work this week and we were talking about a patient and the individual was like, well, no, I need them to make eye contact. And I'm like, no, you don't. That is so, that's such an intimate act. No. And came from 14 different ways, but yep. Nope. Sorry. Continue. Well, and that's centering the therapist's expectations, not the child's 
needs. Like, I think the way that they said that is perfect. I need for them to make eye contact. Yes. And I was like, "Mm, nope. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and and that's just an instance where it doesn't take much listening to hear autistic people saying, I learn better when I'm not looking at your face. I find it overwhelming or distracting to look at somebody's face while I'm also trying to listen and process. I quoted Temple Grandin. That was my go-to response. <laughs> so like, yeah. Yeah. And and it's not just eye contact. I give an example a lot of a way that Rachel Dorsey, who we've mentioned before, she's an autistic SLP and she's one of the Learn, Play, Thrive course creators on goal writing. She audited my course for me. And there was one case study in there of like a 12-year-old girl who was really social, just really wanted to have friends, but she was running into trouble because she just wanted to play dolls. And her friends wanted her to be able to find out what they wanted to do and find a shared activity that they could do together. And she was distressed. I mean, this this is based on a real case study with the details changed. But this little girl was distressed because she really wanted to be successful and she could tell that she wasn't. So I sort of justified teaching a quote-unquote social skill because I was like, well, it's to help her meet her own goal. We did like a little Venn diagram, right, where she would name some of the things that she likes, interview her friends, do you like this, do you like that, do you like that, and find the areas where it overlapped. And I felt like it was a great success, right? She did it with her mom. She did it with me. She took her little chart. She used it on her play date that weekend. She came back so excited that it had worked. And when I talked to Rachel about it, she was kind of like, yeah, but it's not going to keep working. And it's so much more complicated than that. And what happens when those peers eventually reject her? Because you can't just teach social skill after social skill after social skill to bridge this difference between the way she interacts and the way her peers interact. And what happens when she starts to feel bad about herself and feel like she just needs to mask more, which is what happens to a lot of autistic girls and women when people-pleasing meets masking, right? It's just this crisis of identity where you learn, I can just learn more and more about how to act neurotypical and be less and less myself. And I said, Rachel, what do we do instead? And we, we came up with this plan that really centered her feeling accepted and authentic. So in this instance, it was making sure that she had autistic-only spaces so that she was connected to other autistic people who could and would continue to accept her for who she was and not ask her to be less autistic, that she had interest-based groups where she could engage with others based on the things that she loved and build connections that way, and that she was learning about herself and learning to accept herself to sort of head off all of the rejection that was probably going to be coming her way. And this was such a more important plan. It had so much more depth and was so much less centered on me being like, wrote a goal, met the goal, pat myself on the back, and more centered on what is actually going to help this child love and accept herself and participate in her life. I'm just wondering, how do y'all talk to the caregivers about this? 
because I have caregivers that come to me that, for lack of a better phrase, want me to fix a problem that they feel is occurring. And those are hard conversations to have. So how do you explain and empower the autistic child while setting realistic goals for the caregivers? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and it's a hard question. It's actually a question I ask yeah. people on my podcast all the time just to get different perspectives <laughs> on it. Yes. So okay. I'm just going to funnel their brilliant answers back to you. Okay. Because I did – I had a parent tell me that – and the question was exactly what you're asking, right? So how do we work with parents who have internalized the medical model? Is basically yes. what you're saying that they yes. have learned. I don't think it's intuitive for parents to look at a child and say, "What's wrong? Where are they failing? Where do they need remediation? How can we fix them?" This comes from a conversation I had this week, where the mom came to me and said, "Well, they gave him a new medicine for his autism," and I was like, "Oh, that's that's not a thing, right?" And it was like really tricky, slippery slope. And yes, so please know that's like that was what was going through my head. Yeah, I mean, yes. but, but parents really have been taught and are, are stressed and anxious because they want to do right by their child. They have been taught a medical deficits-based model and then they bring that to us and we kind of go, oh, but I just learned this strengths-based affirming model. What do I do here? Yes. And at a parent, her name is Jen Shonger. She works at the New Jersey Center for Autism Excellence. I think that's the right name. Autism Center for Excellence. And she has an autistic child. And the advice that she gave me was to connect with a parent's deepest long-term goals for their child, to love themselves, to be accepted, to be happy, to have a joyful life. And to start from there, to remind them of how we build our lives based on our strengths, not based on our deficits. There's some good research on deficits, uh, I'm sorry, on strengths-based documentation by two OTs did this research. It was Dr. Scott Tomchek and Evan Dean. And what they found was that when providers used strengths-based language in their report writing, so talking about what a child can do, and then just talking objectively about what happened when sort of the next level of challenge was presented, not child presents deficits in, but, you know, just to use a, a boring OT example, like when given two one-inch blocks, child picked up one block and put it back down on the table. So we're not using rose-colored glasses and saying, oh, there's nothing they can't do. We're describing what happened, but we are focusing on what they can do, what their emerging skills are, and what our opportunities are to support them. And when providers used strengths-based language in their documentation, parents had better interactions with their kids. Basically, parents liked, loved, and accepted their children more when the therapist modeled strengths-based language, even just in their documentation. So we get to plant this deficits-based medical model monster that parents have internalized and show them something different. Well, and we know, I mean, as we should, as speech pathologists, how important language is. And so the language that you use 
two parents can really impact exactly what you're saying with this documentation, how they're viewing their child. And also, I mean, we understand that parents want to protect their children from this world that might not be as kind to them. But the more that it makes sense getting to their deepest goals for their child and helping them understand that by setting your child up to be confident and authentic in who they are, like that's setting them up for success. And the more that we use this language, the more it gets picked up by other people, the more we give them empowerment to use this language to talk about their children as well. And it can have more of that ripple effect because you learn so much about a culture by the way that they, they use language. I think about in a lot of Asian cultures, there's one pronoun and that can like tell you a lot about how people, the culture in and of itself, just by the language that they use. Absolutely. My head is spinning and I am struggling to keep pace with all of this information and have followed every single person that you said, cause I have so much. Okay. Fi- folks, just to like put everybody up to speed, please go follow Rachel Dorsey SLP on Instagram, the AAC coach, also known as Kate McLaughlin, um, Meg Proctor's Learn, Play, Thrive, and Meaningful Speech. That's just a few, just so that everybody else who's keeping notes also don't do that while you're driving. Do that when you're stationary. <laughs> but like, and I yes, would, I would add to that following. I mean, Rachel okay. Dorsey is autistic, but finding and following autistic SLPs and autistic people as well. Yes. Do you have that, some that you would recommend? And I know that this, we still have more to cover, but there's so many resources for me to like process. I'm just trying to keep with it. I mean, do you have a few that more that you would like to recommend or add to this list? I'm trying to think of speech specific. Rachel Dorsey is so my go-to. Nigh Functioning Autism is an AAC user. They are not an SLP, but very- What is it called? Nigh Functioning Autism. It's a play on high functioning autism, like N-I-G-A. Okay. Autistic, Founder. Autistic Typing is another good account, mostly on Facebook. There's just so many. I mean, I think for SLPs listening to non-speaking people, right? for sure, and their experiences. I think the first non-speaking person that I interviewed was Ido Kadar, who has written a couple of books and describes, I mean, in painful detail, his experience as a very bright person whose body just sort of didn't listen to his brain for speaking. And he was called low functioning, which did not reflect his experience of the world and spoken around and over his old childhood. But he, you know, he describes what it was like to be in speech therapy. And to be an OT and to be in behavioral therapies. And it wasn't good. (laughs) And then somebody taught him how to type. And all of a sudden he was, I mean, really honestly writing books about his experiences. So people like that, we can really learn a lot from. In talking about, you know, we've had a lot of conversations about this is what we should do. And this is, these are the resources. This is why. But what are some of the barriers that therapists are facing? And And I think, and this is something that I've been really thinking about is like how, what you've come across, how people are responding to this, how other therapists are kind of 
taking in this knowledge and processing it. Yeah. So I will say the way that my work and the work of the people who I'm platforming has been received was really surprisingly positive to me. And I guess it shouldn't be surprising, but I remember writing a blog post a couple of years ago about why I don't use hand over hand, like moving a child's body for them. And and I've felt this way for a long time that like we just don't have the right to move somebody's body for them to get them to do what we want them to do, right? And like autistic people are at higher risk of sexual assault and we're teaching them adults make choices about their bodies. And it's also just really sloppy therapy that people do when they don't know what else to do. So I remember writing this article and then just bracing myself for the backlash and my business was pretty small when I wrote it, but it was actually like the number one hit on Google if you searched hand over hand for a mm. while. So it wasn't like you search it and you'd find some resource on why and how to do it. You'd find my like, don't do it article because it was, it, people shared it because it resonates with their values at their core. And so I started really speaking to OTs and then. SLPs kind of came knocking down my door and I was like, okay, all right, I'm here for you too. And I don't mean, I mean, like <laughs> no, yeah. the people I no, platform at Learn, Play, Thrive are here and the message is here because it resonates because none of us set out to be therapists because we wanted to harm people or just kind of have a neutral impact. People are are really open to hearing I guess about the ways that our work can align better with our deepest core values. And I think they're hungry for it. So as soon as I started sort of platforming against behavioral practices, like planned ignoring, withholding interest for first then, hand over hand, rewards and reinforcers, there were a lot of people who heard that maybe for the first time, maybe not, and just kind of screamed yes. So that's been really heartening to see the overwhelmingly positive response from therapists. But the barriers that people face are very real. I mean, the the first one is the one that we've sort of been trying to work through today is our own lack of knowledge, lack of perspective taking. You don't know what you don't know, right? Our own blind spots. And hopefully if people aren't on the the path towards working on that this is you know the first step onto that path but then we f- we work within the medical model most of us and we face pressures from our workplace culture our coworkers insurance our insurance companies and we have to be brave <laughs> i mean i think that our drive to better support our clients and to stop the forces that are actively harming our clients really has to be stronger than our own fear of getting criticized. Um, That we really, I had a professor in OT school tell me, Meg, if you're going to stand up for people and fight your professors, I've always been like this. Um, Like if you're going to do all these (laughs) things that you do, you're going to have to get thicker skin when you're the one who gets criticized. And that was, that was very annoying to hear. You can imagine (laughs) she was responding to, to a a faux pas that she had made, but she was right. It was some of the best advice I've gotten is that you have to have thick skin and be brave and you can be kind and brave mm-hmm. 
at the same time and do the work to say, you know what, like wherever you fall on that, right? Like I'm somebody who wants to speak to as many people as I can and change larger systems. A lot of people are people on the ground who say, maybe I can try to do my work differently. Maybe I'll try to do my work in a way that aligns with my values. And then there's a lot of people who say, I'm going to try to do my work differently and I'm going to try to change the culture of my school or my clinic or my district or whatever it is too. So whatever resonates with you, it takes courage and it takes building up a whole new skill set, but it's, but it's worth it. It's worth it. You're talking to two people who tend to be kindred spirits. squeaky wheel. Yeah, I can tell. I can tell actually. (laughs) You guys, you dive right in. I love it. Uh This was literally my Bible study this morning was be bold and don't be afraid because, which was like freaking perfect because anxiety was kicking my, you know what, they'll edit it out. But I. Well, and it goes back to Meg, what you were saying a lot about taking a step back and not making it about you because I think the therapy, I need them to do this. I need them to do that is part of why we're doing that. But also why people have trouble then changing their perspective, I think is because then you have to, you have to take a deep look at what you have been doing and you have to give yourself grace and you have to say, this is what I was taught to do. I'm not a bad person. I didn't mean to cause harm. I can do better now and I can learn from it. And you have to process through that. And then you also have to look at your own differences and how that might be impacting why you're having difficulty connecting with somebody else as well, because you have to learn. And our job is, I love what I do. I am very passionate about what I do, but we give a lot of ourselves to our patients and it's beautiful, but it is It's a lot of energy. It's a lot of emotions. It's a lot of, it's a big cognitive load in and of itself. And so to do the type of therapy that we're talking about today is a lot of research. It's a lot of reflective practice. It's not for the faint of heart, but it's what we have to do. And I got to add in, and we're always struggling with the 20 year curve of research to practice. So if you're looking at a 20-year curve of a research to practice and a profession that is 97% upper middle class white female, where we're struggling to look at our biases and hold conversations with that level and then add this layer in, Meg, you said it in the beginning, we have to amplify autistic voices. And that's absolutely key. Erin, there is so much to be done on that autism manual. Oh, my stars. I'm beginning to catch a glimmer of what you were talking about. Oh, yeah, Meg, I've taken on the task of trying to rewrite our autism manual in South Carolina, which it's also in thinking about this, like, why do we have an autism manual? So there's a lot a lot of things to it. But when I read it over, I was like, <gasps> oh, oh problematic. It's incredibly problematic. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, I have so many follow-up questions and we are so over our time. (laughs) Meg, can you come back in the future pretty please? (laughs) Yeah. And I'd also encourage you to find no autistic OT SLPs to to share their experience too. There's a lot of them out there. This is why I was rapid fire writing everybody down and just hoping nobody could hear my nails clicking on my cell phone in the background. (laughs) So yes to the yes. Oh, 
Did we miss anything? Do you have anything you want to end with as we just word vomited at you? <laughs> no, that's okay. Do you, I mean, do you let people plug their... Oh, absolutely. Yes. Wait. And I was going to ask your courses, the courses that you have on learnplaythrive.com, are they eligible for SLP CEUs as well as OT CEUs? Like where are we in the CEU world? Yes. So our courses are registered for AOTA and ASHA CEUs. We have a 12 contact hour course on AAC called Authentic AAC. My course that I teach alongside of some content from an autistic OT and an autistic SLP. It's called the Learn, Play, Thrive Approach to Autism, and it's registered for nine and a half contact hours. And that's where, that's really the foundational course on strengths-based approaches, like creating meaningful visual supports and having a strengths-based framework for understanding and creating supports for our autistic clients that's really based on what the latest of what we know about autism learning styles and our clients' strengths. And then I have a course by Rachel Dorsey called Goal Writing for Autistic Students that is 10 and a half contact hours. And it's based in she she said it in the schools because it's the hardest setting to write strengths-based goals, but it's applicable for anybody who works with autistic kids in any setting. And we also have a lot of free resources on the website too. There's the podcast, mm-hmm. there's free trainings. Um, I share a lot of free re- resources on my social media. And I did make a coupon code for your listeners if they want to take any of our any of those three oh. longer trainings. You are fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. It's called First Bites. 35 and it's $35 off any of those three longer trainings. Oh, thank you. That is such a happy – thank you. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited <laughs> to share it with your listeners. Hopefully this sparks some enthusiasm for, for neurodiversity affirming practice. I was just thinking, ooh, I didn't register for that other class. I'm going to have to register for these classes, but I have to renew my CLC first and then. <laughs> but like, <laughs> this is fantastic. Thank you. Meg, thank you so much. All right, folks, go check her out on two sides of the spectrum. Check out her website. Erin, honey, thank you for First Bite and thank you for enlightening us about Meg and all of this world. I just, I was like, we have to get, I've been learning a lot and I, once I start, I don't stop. So I have a lot. I mean, we all have constant learning to do. So I'm grateful that you were here to help us kickstart that. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. All right, everybody that's listening, make sure you check out First Bite Podcast on Instagram, um, First Bite Podcast on Facebook. We love it when you hit us up for a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget, next month is Pediatric Feeding Disorders Month. And I'm pretty sure Aaron and I have some delightful giveaways and exciting news coming. So stay tuned. All right, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. 
The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.